Morning, everyone. Thanks to Naomi for bringing the uh, Old Testament reading to us. Um, the New Testament reading, which the, the Old Testament reading gives the background to, is from Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm going to be um, starting to read at verse 12. This is all talking about Jesus. When this priest, that's Jesus, has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then, he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let's just pray. Father, we just want to ask, please, that whatever the inadequacies of my preaching, you will speak into our hearts. Father, you know the different uh, situations we're in, but I ask, Father, please, that you will speak to each one of us by your Spirit, from your Word. Amen. Now, even if you're not a driver, I'm sure that you're familiar with the uh, road sign that's circular and has a white bar against a red background and means, any offers? No entry. I hope that's what you were saying. I couldn't quite hear. No entry. Um, you mustn't go that way. In fact, we often see no entry signs in other places too, not just as road signs. We sometimes see them outside construction sites or places that house dangerous machinery or where there are other hazards. They are there to stop us going into a place where we may get hurt. You must not go in. At times, you may come across signs that exclude you from particular areas. Uh, earlier this year, Marlene and I visited some gardens. It's a thing that older people do, you see. We went and visited some gardens, and we could go almost anywhere except when we came across a sign saying, private, no public access. Private, no entry, no public access. 
Sometimes we are just excluded from places. Now, if you read through the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, and I know it's not an easy read, and it's not the most inspiring part of the Bible, although it is quite important um, for understanding some parts of the New Testament. When you come to chapter 16, the uh, section that Naomi read, you'll come across these words spoken um, by God to Moses about Aaron or Aaron, Moses' brother who had been appointed high priest. Aaron was God's choice for that role. But God says, tell your brother Aaron he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark. No entry, no access to the most holy place, what used to be called the holy of holies, the innermost part of the tabernacle. So just an explanation or a reminder of the setup of the tabernacle, the huge tent that uh, God had commanded Moses to erect. So I hope you'll be able to make out this is a diagram of the setup of the tabernacle. It was a two-roomed tent for uh, God set within a large enclosed space where sacrifices took place. The first room of the tent was the holy place, but the inner room was the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Above the Ark were the cherubim, uh, overshadowing the atonement cover. Now, God is everywhere, but he chose to be in a special way above the Ark in the most holy place in the tabernacle. And it's access to the most holy place that's prohibited. It's prohibited to the Israelites in general, no public access. It's prohibited even to the priests who offer the general sacrifices day by day throughout the year. And it's prohibited even to the chief priests, the high priests. Aaron is not to come into the most holy place, except except for on one day a year, Aaron and the other high priests that follow him can go in on the day appointed by God himself, the day of atonement. The high priest can go in on that day, but he must be clean, he must have bathed, he must be wearing the right clothes, and he must have made the right sacrifices. We need to try and understand why there was this prohibition. Like there was a sign saying no entry to unauthorised personnel over the most holy place. And I think it's not perhaps so easy for us to do that because we live this side of Calvary. The prohibition about going into the most holy place was because God was there in a special way. The eternal God the creator God, the creator of everything that there is. The God who is good, with a goodness, a purity, that we can't get our heads around. 
But men and women are created beings. We are mortal, so tiny, if you like, compared with the bigness of God. And what's more, we're not good. We are sinful. We often make bad choices. Choices that are bad for us and harmful to others. When the prophet Isaiah has his vision of God that's recorded in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees God high and exalted on a throne. We've been singing about it already this morning. With just the hem of his garment filling the temple. Heavenly beings are flying around declaring uh, the holiness of God. And Isaiah's reaction, he cries out, there's no hope for me, I'm doomed. Because every word that passes my lips is sinful and I live among people whose every word is sinful. And yet, with my own eyes, I've seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That's from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5 from the Good News Translation. On other occasions in the Bible, when people encounter God in a special way, their reaction is often fear, recognizing the greatness, the otherness of God and their own unworthiness. So Jacob, on his way to meet his brother Esau, he wrestles with a man who he recognizes is um, God. And he says, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Even in the New Testament, we get something like this. When Simon Peter encounters uh, firsthand a miracle of Jesus, a huge catch of fish, when he'd worked all night and caught nothing, he falls at Jesus' feet and says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When John has his vision of the risen and ascended Jesus that's recorded in Revelation, he fell at his feet as though dead. Encountering God was often something that scared those to whom it happened. It seemed, it was, a dangerous thing to do. So God, as it were, puts up a no entry to unauthorized personnel sign at the entrance to the most holy place where he is in a special way. And yet, when we come to the passage in Hebrews that I read, we find that that no entry sign has been taken down. And there's talk of entering the most holy place with confidence. And we hear this invitation. Let us draw near to God. What's going on? Is the God of the Old Testament different from the God of the New? Has he changed? Absolutely not. The same God, the great creator, good, holy, without sin or darkness within. What then has happened? Now, if you've worked with children at all and tried to teach them about the Bible, they're, very, they're quite cute, they very often uh, understand what that you want them to answer. And so if you ask them a question, very often they'll shout out, Jesus, because they know that quite often that's the answer to the question that you want to hear. Well, the answer to those questions that I posed, how can we, um, how can we have this invitation into the most holy place to draw near to God? The answer is 
Jesus. What has happened to make it possible? Jesus has happened. Or to be more theologically correct, for Jesus has always been there with God from the beginning. Now Jesus has come into our world and died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. On the 29th of April 2011, a young couple named William and Kate got married. To go to that wedding, you needed an invitation from the Lord Chamberlain acting on behalf of the Queen. You couldn't get in without the invitation. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, we have an invitation from the writer to the Hebrews on behalf of God himself to come into the presence of God, to draw near to God. For although God is the great creator, the good, the holy God, before whom we might just fall at his feet and say, go away from me, Lord, I'm sinful. He's also the God who is love, the God who longs for us to know him as a loving, caring father and has made that possible through giving his son to bear our sins on the cross. You've probably never come across this guy. His name's Thomas Long. He's written an excellent book on Hebrews. But he um, says this there. God longs for us to know that we are welcomed into the place the human heart longs to be. The very presence of God. God has welcomed us into the place where the human heart longs to be. The very presence of God. So let's consider a bit further why we should take up this invitation to draw near to God. Firstly, it's to find assurance of forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 isn't the first time in the letter to Hebrews that the writer has called upon his readers to draw near to God. He does so also in chapter 4 verse 16 in different words. And there he gives two excellent reasons for drawing near to God. The first of which is that we may receive mercy. When we've done something wrong, something of which we're ashamed of, then I think maybe our first reaction is to cover it up. We don't want other people to know. I guess lots of you will recognize this guy, Simon Mayo. Um, he used to have on Radio 2 a program called Drive Time. Um, and in that uh, program, he used to have something called a slot called Confessions. Anybody remember the Confessions? A few nods. Yeah, good. Um, it's some, you can still get it as a podcast if you're interested. Listeners used to send in accounts of things that they had done wrong that they felt guilty about but hadn't owned up to. The one that stuck in my mind was about this woman who, when she was about nine years old, um, her brother bought um, a, a vinyl record, an LP, of a group that he really liked. And he played it and played it. And she liked the uh, uh, music as well. 
he was out one day and she took the record out of his sleeve and she played it. And the inevitably happened, she scratched the record. She put it back in the sleeve, put it away, didn't say anything about it. But of course, the next time the brother played the record, of course it jumped. And he was furious. Who's scratched my record? And um, her mother actually confronted her face to face. And she blatantly denied it. Until about 30 years later, when on the uh, Simon Mayo program, she owned up to it. In the Bible, the classic case of trying to cover up wrong is David, who after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba, he tries his best to cover it up by getting Bathsheba's husband drunk. When that doesn't work, he engineers the husband's death. It's not until he's challenged by Nathan the prophet um, that David admits his sin. Trying to cover up when we've done wrong is, I think, almost an instinctive reaction. But the Bible says, in words that I guess most of us know well, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We come in the words of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, with a sincere heart, not covering up our sin or excusing it, but laying it before God. One of the most helpful things I've ever come across, read or heard about prayer, I found in a book uh, by Richard Foster simply called Prayer, where he quotes C.S. Lewis advising this. We lay before God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. And God forgives us on the basis of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's what the Day of Atonement, um, that Leviticus chapter 16, it's all a picture of. There's one part of the Day of Atonement that the writer to Hebrews doesn't pick up on, but which I believe is also valid to see fulfilled by Jesus, and that's the part of the scapegoat. On the Day of Atonement, two goats are chosen. One is sacrificed as an offering for sin, but on the other one, the high priest lays hands on it, confesses over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. And that goat is taken right away from the Israelites and released in a solitary place into the desert. You may see how that symbolizes Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that in some way our confession earns our forgiveness, that if we make sure we've confessed everything, God will forgive, forgive us. Our being forgiven depends on the great mercy of God in giving his son to die on the cross, bearing our sins. Now, confessing our sins to God is essential, but it doesn't rule out 
confessing our wrongs to others where that's appropriate. It doesn't uh, rule out making restitution again where that's appropriate and possible. But the key thing I want to stress is that, is that we draw near to God to obtain mercy. And because we're trusting in Jesus, it's like um, our sins, uh, our hearts are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of animals that are sprinkled on the atonement covenant of the ark and we are cleansed from a guilty conscience. What happened in the tabernacle? It's a co- like a sort of copy, a picture, a shadow of a greater reality. The phrase in Hebrews 10 about our bodies being washed with pure water may refer to baptism, but I think it's more likely to refer to the cleansing power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, of which baptism is just a sign. So then, through God, through Jesus, we have access to the grace and mercy of God. We really are forgiven. We draw near to God to know assurance of forgiveness. Secondly, we draw near to God to know the care of our loving Father in heaven. The second part of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, we approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And our lives, in our lives, don't we so often encounter times of need? Life is so often difficult. We experience pain, physical or emotional, suffering in other ways, loss of people we love, loss in other ways of abilities or their power to accomplish what we once did, Trials in all sorts of ways. Relationships get broken. People get hurt. We can be disappointed with the way things work out. We can go through times of doubt and discouragement. There's a short phrase in the first letter of Peter that says this. God cares for you. And because he cares for us, because he is not just creator God, but a good father, our cares and concerns are his too. So he invites us to give him all our anxieties, all those things that nag away at our minds, that keep us awake at night, to give those to him. In simple prayer, we tell him what's on our minds, what's troubling us, Our loving, caring God is, in the words of another verse from Psalm 103, like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. We draw near to find grace to help in times of need. How will that grace come? Perhaps in strength to sustain us. Or words to encourage us from a friend or from scripture. Perhaps practical help from someone. Or maybe with a special sense of the presence of God. 
or a particular answer to prayer. We draw near to God to know assurance of forgiveness, to know the care of our loving Father. And thirdly, to understand God's purposes. As I was preparing this sermon, I was concerned that in a world that seems so troubled, with so many problems, to speak about drawing near to God to know assurance of forgiveness and grace to help in time of need, I thought that might be very inward-looking. So for this last point, I'm straying away from the passage in Hebrews to talk about understanding God's purpose. Surely God's purpose is to see the world working in ways that are good and just. Isn't that what we pray for when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? Surely God's purpose is to see people coming to know him through Jesus. Isn't that what uh, the Apostle Paul worked for and called the churches with whom he was involved to work with in partnership with him? Surely God's purpose is for the most unlikely people to respond to his invitation to the great banquet in his kingdom. Isn't that what Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 14 is all about? Down the ages, these are, I believe, always God's purposes for his world. And we draw near to God to understand them, but also what our part is in fulfilling them not least in prayer. There's a short verse in Acts chapter 13 which speaks of David having served God's purpose in his own generation. And perhaps we should seek to draw near to God to understand his purposes so that we can serve those purposes within our own generation in our own times, and our own particular culture. Understanding what that means for us now. So then, three th- reasons why we should draw near to God. To know assurance of sins forgiven. To know the care of a loving, heavenly Father, and to understand the purposes of God. We draw near to God through Jesus, our great high priest, because he has already entered the presence of God and because of his sacrificial death on the cross. So here then is an invitation to all who have put their trust in Jesus. There is no no entry sign. There's nothing that says private, you can't come in. Nothing that says you can only come in at certain times of the year. Certainly not just once a year. So here, this invitation 
clearly. Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance that faith brings. Amen. Just a moment or two of quiet, and if you feel that God has spoken to you, just ask him that you won't forget that. Amen. And we're going to close with a, um, a song that talks about Jesus as our great high priest, giving us access to our Heavenly Father. Thank you, Ian. And as Ian has spoken about um, the no entry sign. Perhaps as we sing this song, we can think also about the fact that um, we're not pointed toward the exit either. When I was preparing to use this song, I thought about the, the words at the end of the first verse, which say, No tongue can bid me thence depart. And I thought, well, it, you know, it's, it's old-fashioned language, but... You know, it's part of a, a hymn or words that were written many years ago. What do I understand when I sing that line? The line that says, while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And I think in the same way that Ian has spoken about us uh, being able to enter the presence of God, this line is a reminder that whilst Jesus is there, as our great high priest, no one can turn around and say to us, get out, uh, you have to leave this place. No one can tell us that whilst Jesus stands uh, as our saviour. So let's sing together.